Turpentine is excited to announce our new show, The AI Daily Brief, hosted by Nathaniel Whittemore. The AI Daily Brief is a daily show that covers all things AI, from legislation to new technologies in the market, to the philosophical and ethical debates around generalized intelligence. If you're looking for an edge to stay up to date on everything AI, subscribe to The AI Daily Brief at the link in the description. Isudra is serving customers who are capital W writers. I think in the sort of medium term, these LLMs do open up the possibility that, hey, if you never even consider writing a story or a novel, tools like Sudorite can help you achieve that. We can let you give us both the 50,000 foot view all the way down to the leaves of the scenes themselves and who's in the scenes. We're not out here to replace writers. We're out here to create tools in cost or writers who are giving us feedback all the time about how this helps their lives and lets them be more creative. We work hand in hand with novelists who were literally some of them like cried tears of joy when they actually got this into their hands. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. James Yu is a co-founder of Pseudowrite, an AI writing assistant built for fiction writers. I first encountered James and Pseudowrite on Twitter back in May, when he introduced a number of new product features with a video, and for some reason, presumably stemming from growing fears of AI replacement in general, and the ongoing Writers Guild strike in particular, ended up getting an absolute wave of hate and vitriol in response. The video, which has now reached more than 8 million people, has one of the crazier ratios you'll see, especially if you take the time to watch the video and try the product, as I did, and see just how thoughtfully James and team have built PseudoRed. Fascinatingly to me, their homepage headline speaks not to AI capabilities, but to human needs. They describe the product as the non-judgmental, always available, willing to read 30 drafts AI writing partner you always wanted. It's clear from this conversation that James is someone who loves both AI and writing, and he's building something that helps him write better. So we focused mostly on how they've built the product over the last three years, starting with the original GPT-3, which they do still use in some cases. And then we also cover various language model tips and tricks that may generalize to other applications, my idea for an AI commercial bundle, his experience of anti-AI online dogpiling, and more. As it happened, just as we were recording, news broke that a deal had been reached between the Writers Guild and the Hollywood studios. And James has since publicly endorsed the AI portion of the agreement, which seems to protect writers' traditional contractual rights and prevents studios from forcing AI tools on them, while also preserving the writer's freedom to use AI as part of their creative process going forward. I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about this precedent-setting agreement in the future, but for now, if you're enjoying the show, please do send it to a friend. We do a super wide range of episodes, and my hope is that each one can serve as a niche entry point into the broader AI discussion. But for that to happen, I do need some distribution help from the core listeners. So please send this one to a fiction writer in your life. And with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with James Yu of PseudoWrite. James Yu! Welcome to the Cognitive Revolution. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. You have built uh, a cool product and had a bit of a dramatic summer since you launched the most recent version of it. 
and uh, excited to get into all of that. I guess I should say right out of the gate, you are a founder of the company PseudoWrite. And uh, this is a company that helps people create long form content. And you've been doing it for a couple of years already. I, I you know, just in checking you out, saw that some of the quotes on the website were from a launch back in 2021, when you got some really nice coverage, including uh, mentions in the New York Times and the New Yorker and so on. Uh, so I guess, you know, for starters, I'd love to kind of hear what you saw early on in the GPT-3 era and how that, you know, kind of translated so quickly into a product. So I think you're very much ahead of the curve relative to, to most who are getting into it a little bit later now. Yeah, I think we've actually been around about three years and it was mostly kind of in private uh, beta at that point. But yeah, I, as soon as GPT-3 came out, you know, I was at that time heavily writing fiction, uh, focused on science fiction. And when it came out, I was, you know, I was seeing all these people just like create memes and all these things with uh, GPT-3. And you know, this is like the first model, right? Da Vinci, like version 1.0. Uh, but even back then, I sort of asked myself and my co-founder, uh, Amit, like, can this actually be helpful for creatives? And that's really the heart of you know, what we've been working on. And I started using it in my own writing and I thought it was helpful. So then we started building PseudoWrite really as a toy uh, back in like kind of late 2020. Um, and even in that nascent state of GPT-3, it was the hallucinations and all those things actually were a great feature, not necessarily a bug for fiction writing. So I think that's actually part of why it was working for us. And yeah, you know, we we also were very involved with fiction communities and just really started seeding pseudo-write and this kind of way of writing with writing groups and grew just very organically uh, from there. Yeah. Yeah, boy, it takes us back into the history of language models, which folks who've listened to this show will, you know, kind of know that progression. And if anybody wants a recap, our Riley Goodside episode is probably the best kind of history of models and how they were fine-tuned and how that kind of plays out in terms of how users, you know, can best interact with them. Uh, but I'm struck, you know, from the... Just going back again to that DaVinci 1.0, as you said, if I recall correctly, the context window was just 2,000 tokens in that original version. And also, you didn't really have any of the instruct training so you really had to kind of set something up in this sort of highly suggestive, you know, autocomplete sort of structure. And, you know, that doesn't give you a ton to work with, right? If you're, if you're limited to that narrow context and trying to write long form fiction. So I'd love to hear kind of how you bootstrap your way into getting that to work for you. And, you know, then how you started to turn that into a product where obviously, you know, it does a lot more now than it did that. I think a lot of it just came down to user expectations. Uh, so actually our first uh, feature that we had was called a wormhole. Uh, it wasn't called, you know, right or like all these other things. We called it wormhole because, hey, this is what, you know, five other versions of you and other multiverses could possibly write for the next paragraph. And for us, that, that really set the tone for like, okay, it might be a little wild, uh, it may not follow your tone exactly, but it might inspire you, right? So uh, we set the expectation that, hey, this is not always going to be precisely what you will write next. Um, so then our target really was when you were just absolutely stuck, right? When you're writing something to just get you unstuck. And maybe it's just the wrong thing. And we actually put that on a pedestal to say, hey, that may actually be good because if it writes the wrong thing, maybe it gives you 
and understanding of how you want to write the right thing, right? How, how you want to actually approach this. So yeah, actually without so that with that expectation in mind, the constraint of the smaller context window wasn't really a problem. It was more that you're at this cursor, it reads whatever about you know thousand words or so and just gives you the next like 500 words. Well, we don't insert it straight into the document. And that's the other thing too, like, and, 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 and we still do that today. It's like, we give you cards so you consider them. You should read them over. You shouldn't just immediately just insert it. So yeah, I, w- I would say it comes down to those constraints. And obviously that's very localized, right? And that's kind of the working with DaVinci was like, okay, it really works very locally. And as the models got better, the instruct models, and obviously today, which you can do four, uh, we've been able to widen that lens so that we can help you with a larger part of your story, not just the next paragraph. Yeah, very interesting. Do you remember just out of pure curiosity, any kind of clever prompt tricks that you used in those early days to get the right kind of output back? Yeah, it was a lot of few shot things, uh, right? Just giving examples. Uh, and funny enough, I would give examples using, for example, we had a describe tool that was like giving, that would give good descriptions based on something that you highlighted in your text. And that's, that's something like author, fiction authors need to do to give very rich descriptions. And what I would do is I give few shots from my own stories and how I describe things. So I would actually say like the first iterations of that tool was probably more like a, how James would describe this <laughs> uh, kind of kind of thing in his you stories, right? You cascaded yourself in your own product. Right, exactly. Um, but because we also took the context of, you know, what the user is giving in their manuscript, it didn't matter too much. Uh, it was like giving the AI a bit of a flavor, like, okay, you want me to go into this literary like, latent space? And it's really just kicking into there. So there's a lot of tricks like that, of just like giving few shots, uh, doing a lot of, I would say a lot of prompt, I think prompt engineering is one thing, but I think this prompt evaluation was the big thing. Like we did so many panels between me and my co-founder and our writing groups that were very invested in like, helping shaping this product getting their feedback on a wide diverse set of fiction and fiction writing was very key in those early days. And, and, and today as well, we still do that today. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, I, I want to get um, into a little bit more of the details of the product and how all this is continuing to evolve. But for a little bit more context, I just noticed the headline right at the top of the homepage, uh, which is very colorful. The non-judgmental, always available, willing to read 30 drafts, AI writing partner you always wanted. And I guess, you know, what jumped out to me about that was how sort of non-utilitarian it is. You know, I mean, you could imagine another version of it that's like, this thing writes the best copy, you know, you buy it now (laughs) or, you know, some uh, maybe more um, artful, but still kind of clearly purpose oriented version of that. This is much more about the need of the author, really. It kind of speaks to you know, the emotional needs of somebody who's maybe, as you said, stuck in the writing process. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how, you know, was that something that you started with originally? Is, is that something users have led you to? Who are, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about kind of your early users being committed writers, but I wonder how that's evolved over time. Uh, but that just really caught my eye as a super fascinating way to position the product. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And this this has remained consistent. For example, it compares to the right to like an enterprise writing tool that is trying to help you write emails, 
right? In, in that world, you're not really thinking about sort of the, uh, less about maybe the emotional connection, but more about productivity, right? And so that wasn't really the reason why I started using GPT-3. It wasn't necessarily so that uh, I get like more words per minute. It was really about getting me into the right headspace. So based on our, a lot of our early interviews, uh, it's funny, this, this, we're talking a lot of fiction writers and our, our early beta customers, some of them would say, hey, I love your tool. It helps me get unstuck. But actually, the other part that I found is it makes me less lonely. Because as a fiction writer, most fiction writers are lone wolves, right? They're writing, I know, writing on spec. Uh, they, they don't have a writer's room. They're not like the top 90 percentile like Hollywood writers, right? So they don't have that luxury. And maybe they have a writing group, but even then, it's very asynchronous. And most of the time that you're spending is yourself, your computer, your keyboard, your brain. And that's basically it, right? So they began to really like anthropomorphize the AIs and like, hey, this is actually reading my stuff and giving me relevant kind of suggestions. It feels like they are reading, I, I feel less lonely. And a lot of them, some of them are saying like, Hey, even my partner, my life partner, won't even read my manuscripts anymore. <laughs> or, or I'm too embarrassed to show my first draft to uh, my writing group, but I'm not embarrassed to show it to an AI, right? And so when we started hearing this over and over, I think that's where we really seed of like, this is not merely like, give me the next few words of my manuscript kind of thing. I think it goes beyond that. It's really a different way of you working with your ideas and a way for you to connect, you know, connect with w your own work, right? Through the lens. I always think about like it, these large language models as a cultural lens into maybe adjacent texts in the latent space that you may or may not read. Or maybe if you, for example, you go into a library, you read an author that really speaks to you. These language models can fill that space as well. So yeah, we've always we've always spoke to that part of the messaging. Yeah, that's really really interesting. It reminds me a lot of an episode we did with uh, Eugenia, the CEO of Replica, and one of the things that she said because they also started, you know, not even just early in the GPT era, but actually pre GPT models with their virtual friend product. And I'll always remember when she said to me, you know, we we knew we kind of recognized early on that we might not be able to create an AI that could talk, but we could create one that would listen. And I was like, wow, that's just so profoundly speaks to, you know, the, the sort of perhaps often neglected by, by, you know, most technology products needs that people in fact have. And it sounds like you have kind of a similar relationship to your users. So I, I think that's, that's really super fascinating. So, okay. So most of these folks are kind of long tail independent, which makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, most, most fiction is probably written by, you know, folks that have never actually sold a book, but, you know, are doing it for the love of it. And I can certainly imagine how that would be uh, a bit lonely at times. How has the product evolved to today? I mean, when, when I checked it out, I think one of the elements that was most striking about it is that you've built up both a pretty powerful hierarchical system for kind of cascade, you know, starting with kind of a kernel of a story idea and then really developing that across a number of different dimensions and even, you know, kind of cascading down into chapters and then paragraphs. And, you know, ultimately, obviously, it caches out into, you know, word by word. I'd love to hear how you describe that. And then I also 
want to get into a little bit more of kind of the different angles that the product kind of presents because there are sort of character based, um, you know, lenses on the work. And like you also described this kind of rich description based angle. And yeah, I think it's all super interesting. I'm not really a fiction writer myself. So I'm kind of learning about the craft also through studying this product. But yeah, take us through, you know, how the, the product has evolved and, and how people get the most value from it today. Hey, We'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Yeah, sort of going back to that DaVinci 1.0 world where it was very localized. The big unlock that's happened with GPT-4, you know, all the newest models, is that we can get now we're at a point where the AI can really understand a story from the 50,000 foot view. So I see it as like we are evolving from that local like paragraphs to maybe multiple paragraphs to scene-by-scene scene understanding, and now to the whole story arc understanding. And so what we're trying to build up, and we're still, I, I think, in, in the beginning phases of that, of this, like, as you mentioned, this hierarchical thing. The hierarchical, like, uh, the way we structure it is that if you use um, Story Engine, which is our new hierarchical sort of, like, way of writing with Pseudorite, how do we get an author to mind meld with the AI in the right structure, in the right format, so that the AI has the right context at all times. Because even with the kind of the newest context windows that are out there, I know Claude also has like a 100K context window, but the pricing doesn't really work out <laughs> in many cases. Like, do you want to always be using like your whole novel as part of the inference? Probably not, right? So even in that extent case, it's better to give tools, at least the today's state of the art, for the author to give the right context to the AI at the right time. And so, you know, when we're working in this very localized space, when it's just like, give me the next paragraph, we had a little fine grained tools to be like, oh, what give us the sense of like, what is the tone of this scene? Is it uh, ominous? Is it happy? Uh, maybe give us some idea of like who's in it, but very, very small amounts. But now with Story Engine and kind of like this new hierarchical way, we can let you give us both the 50,000 foot view all the way down to the leaves of the scenes themselves and who's in the scenes. And so this allows the AI to pull out the relevant information so that it can do whatever the task is that you want it to do. For example, is it ideating the next plot point? Is it just, you know, give me an idea of like the next paragraph or so, but I can do that now uh, where it does, it feels less like a slot machine because in early days, DaVinci 1.0 is like, Slot, full on a slot machine, you know, maybe one out of like 50 times. It's like, wow, this is a really big gem that I'd love to add to my manuscript. So we're trying to battle this slot machine problem, which is like, can we get it? So every one or one out of two polls, you get something that I'm like, oh, wow, this solves a problem that I have in my storytelling uh, or it unlocks something. So I see it as like humans and the AI sort of meeting in the middle as the kind of way and not trying to get the AI to do everything. Right, because I think that's uh, especially a lot of the Twitter demos that are kind of out there. They're like, "Oh yeah, the AI can just do everything." Well, that's not the point, really. I mean, we are really building this product for centaurs, so half human, half AI, or whatever percentage you want. But you know, but with the human at the head of the centaur, not the butt, <laughs> because I think that's when we lose the plot. On like, why are you even writing fiction? Right, that's kind of what you're doing. Right, so the humans at the head, and can we give the human as much? control at whatever fidelity they want, right? Um, so this is the other 
big challenge that you mentioned, like, yeah, how do fiction writers like work? Well, they work in as many ways as there are fiction writers, because every fiction writer has their own uh, way of writing. Now, this is in uh, converse to like, for example, going back to the writing corporate emails, there's probably less ways to write a corporate email <laughs> than there are to write a novel. That's the challenge of training this type of tool, because like we want to make it flexible enough uh, so that even if an author doesn't adopt story engine, doesn't adopt parts of our system, it can still be useful. And that, I would say, is our primary UX challenge delivering this, is how do we work in the many, in the myriad ways that fiction writers do, and at least be good enough for like a good baseline of like how people are writing, whether they're free writing or they're like outlining first and they like to get everything in place first. Uh, we want our system to work in both of those ways. And from a programming sort of part, uh, you know, I'm a programmer and also a writer. I kind of think about like pseudo write what we're aiming for is almost like an IDE for storytelling. Couldn't really make that happen before. You know, writers have used you know, lots of different kinds of templates and Excel spreadsheets, but it needed a language model to make this actually happen because to actually pierce the veil of what is actually happening in these scenes, and now it's possible. And that's kind of our North Star uh, internally. Like, can we make it as programmers have had IDs and all these things that helps them structure their programs for ages? And fiction writers and covers have basically nothing. Like, they have to do it all, a lot of that schlep themselves. So how can we reduce that schlep so they can focus on part they love most is storytelling part kind of you know your ide thing made me think about like the co-pilot um thing from a few months ago where somebody sort of deconstructed the prompt that co-pilot uses and kind of figured out like how does it go around your you know file structure and what does it grab and what does it stuff into place and so i'm, I'm going to kind of try to riff a little bit you tell me you know where i'm going right or wrong in terms of how yours might be working now that, you know, we're, we're kind of getting to where this is becoming possible. I guess in the two modes of writing, right, there, some, you know, some people, as you said, kind of start with an idea, and then they maybe flesh out an outline and whatever, and you can help them with that. And then I imagine as you get down to kind of the leaves, as you put it, you know, the actual individual pages and the paragraph by paragraph, what's happening to kind of help generate ideas in that context, I imagine that you would have some sort of summarized view of the book as a whole, right? Like we're writing a book that, and interestingly, some of this stuff might not even be generated by the author. I'd be really interested to know if like, there's any sort of summarization or kind of characterization that may be going on in the background that is then, you know, kind of fed into a downstream prompt. But again, if I was trying to build something like this, I'd be like, you know, we're writing a certain kind of book. If that's not clear, I'd maybe, you know, use a summarization or something to, to try to get some sort of headline statement. You know, the book consists of this many chapters. Maybe here's like an outline of the chapter titles or something. Um, we're currently working on, you know, a chapter 22 scene, whatever. You know, here's kind of a little bit of the context immediately before. And maybe if it exists, like here's a little bit of context after. Or like your job is to fill in the blank. Is that like roughly kind of what you're doing? Or I mean, how, how would you kind of complicate my base uh, analysis there? The main challenge is context stuffing these models uh, to give the right information at the right time um, for the right function that you're doing. For example, if you want a good description of this character in a scene, you might need to know like 
the fears of this character, right? <laughs> or maybe like what this character has done in the past, maybe not, right? But you need to be able to give those pieces to the AI so the AI can make a decision. I'm like, okay, is this kind of what I need? I can store this stuff away, but it's very challenging, right? Um, because for example, there may, may be very nuanced kinds of things that happen. Uh, well, here's an easier problem. It's like this character died in chapter six probably should not reintroduce this character in chapter eight, right? Uh, so those are the kinds of prob problems that we are working on right now, which in the, we have parts of it, but in the ultimate case, I think we, what we what we want to be able to do is have, give the AI an understanding of the entire timeline. And this is like more detailed than like the an outline of the novel, like a timeline where the characters are, you know, the state of the world. And then given the states of the world, where are sort of the global Contexts that you bring in that are static, for example, like this character is afraid of fire, you know, or something like that. Um, or what is the premise of the novel? What's the genre? What's the style? And really, it's being that's all this kind of like state is being fed into some decider that figures out, like for the AI, which of these things are the most relevant. And some of that's heuristical, um, uh, something that we're also starting to do now is more like doing a semantic search or vector search across these things to give the right context to the right LLM. Because even, in, you know, this is also trying to understand like the different characteristics of the LLMs. Like what are some things good at and what are some things not good at? For example, GPT-4 is great at being consistent and following rules, but man, it sounds like C-3PO. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, uh, it's not really a... Um, the best creative prose writer, right? Um, but then Claude for Nanthropic, right? Is very good at creative writing, but maybe less good at following kind of rules. So I would say there's a big context piece, but then there's also a piece of like understanding the pen, if you, if you will. I consider these different LLMs like as pen, different styles of pens and mixing and matching them. Some authors, man, they really love using like uh, Claude functions as some authors, they, they have very distinct opinions about this too, which is very interesting. Um, but for us to be able to provide like good baseline is we need to really understand the characteristics of these models at the prose level. So I would say yeah, it's a combination of those two things, but that first piece, that's a long road. I think that um, ultimately, like we were still building to that system that can really, how do we, almost like a time and break down like the novel writing process into these constituent atoms, like these uh, components of kind of like how I'm approaching a scene as a human. We sort of use that as a guide for, okay, how would we get the AI to also approach this scene like a human would? How do we give it the right context, right? Uh, because a human can also, we can't fit the whole novel in our head <laughs> as well. So we also have a context window limit, right? So we're doing the same sorts of processes. So we're taking an almost anthropomorphic kind of view uh, behind the scenes in our algorithms. Let's talk about these kind of leading models because you touched on that. I think that's that's a super fascinating thing, right? Like we've seen this progression from GPT-3, world's biggest autocomplete, you know, this sort of uh, savantish thing that can kind of pick up anywhere and all of a sudden you're in the middle of an internet forum or, you know, whatever. Uh, and now we've got way more dialed in RLHF, RLAIF, much more consistent. I was kind of expecting that you might say that both GPT-4 and Claude 2 kind of had some problems in this respect because I do find them to be 
I don't get a lot of variety. Like if I run Claude 2 over and over again, I feel like I get almost the same thing back every time, kind of no matter what, um, which doesn't seem like maybe what you would want. Maybe it is a little bit, I do think it's in my experience, a little bit better at imitating a user's style compared to a GPT-4. But um, I kind of had expected that you were maybe going to say, actually, we use 3.4, you know, we kind of maybe do some background processing or whatever with the, the frontier models, but then, you know, we actually get maybe a little better results from the kind of one step down, like the 3.5s or the instance, because they're a little less RLHF to death, so to speak, um, or maybe even like open source models, you know, because access to the base model can really open up, obviously, the, the window of possibility. But it sounds like you, I mean, you know, give me more on kind of what models you're using and the mix. Um, and in particular, if you think that there's something I can be doing to get more diverse results out of the frontier models, I would love to understand that for my own purposes, too. So to be clear, we're still using a lot of DaVinci models. Uh, I know they will be <laughs> sunsetted um, uh, soon, but uh, I actually still like them because for certain use cases, the, R the RLHF has this characteristic, as, you as you're saying, it, it smooths out all the rough edges and just makes things a little bit more predictable in some ways. Uh, or like, I like to say the C3PO is like, first we must consider this and blah, blah, blah. You can sort of like smell that from like a mile away, right? So we still mix it up. We still use like a variety of DaVinci models behind the scenes in tandem with like the big, the big one, the GPT-4s of the world. Um, but there are also ways to, I, I say it's not, it's not jailbreaking, but it's like trying to get it into a particular latent space. Is I think less effective than DaVinci, but it is possible. And there are, there are ways to describe certain types of styles of which you want um, uh, in a literary sense, which can get you to have more varied styles. And so one of the things that we have on our, our site is something called Mash My Style. So we're, where we can uh, essentially like you can upload a whole scene of yours, and then we will try to get it to a prompt that will kick GPT-4 into a latent space that's like at least closer to your style without having to fine tune, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll check that out because that's that's kind of, yeah, if, you, if you're describing it, because like I think GPT and all these things have read a lot of literary reviews. So, so it understands the pairing between like how a literary review will review this particular piece of prose and the prose itself. So that gets you closer. It doesn't get you 100%. And that's actually a concern. So that's, uh, and that's why we are now exploring more like open source models and other things, because I think what I'm seeing in the market is that, especially for enterprise use cases, which makes a ton of sense for OpenAI, that they do want to smooth out these rough edges and solve enterprise problems, not necessarily solve creative prose problems. We might go down the path of like, yeah, either fine tuning or getting our own open source models where we can have more control. That's going to be in our books this year uh, to do more of that. That being said, you know, I think a lot of these people who are using a more whole hog to like generate like like full scenes, for example, they're using that as a starting point, right? They're not using it as a final draft. This is the first draft. A lot of our authors have been able to come up with tricks to get more varied style. One example is called kit bashing. So it's where you generate using two different models and then you have a center column where you kit bash and you just copy paste this paragraph from here, this paragraph from here, so almost like a pastiche. 
So you can combine sort of the best of like, for example, Claude versus the Da Vinci versus a, uh, a GPT-4. It came to how artists do this too, you know, like Kip Ashton, where they have basically have a photograph and they just paint over it. So there's some new techniques now being um, discovered by authors using multiple models at the same time. And then a lot of them are also using their own kind of like open source models as well in tandem with Pseudorite, more sophisticated ones, where really they're just like taking multitudes of outputs and just mixing it, mixing it all together, uh, which is really, really fascinating. Uh, I don't personally do that, uh, but a lot of our authors do. Yeah, really interesting. Okay, so just for super specific techniques, because I think people are, you know, are always looking for little nuggets that they can apply in their own projects. When I try to get something to write in my style, and the main thing that I've done that for actually is just the intro essays that I write for these podcasts, and then sometimes like the Twitter thread that I'll you know post to promote it when we release it. I've gone back and just grabbed like five intros from earlier podcasts that I feel pretty good about. Um, just put those in like writing samples one through five. Then I give the transcript of the current podcast. And, you know, obviously this kind of surrounding instructions are like, here are five examples of the writing style. Here's the current discussion. Please write. I would say I use Claude too for that because um, the context window basically requires that the, the length of the podcast is typically too long for anything else. I find that even above like a, an hour and a half is about as much as it can take. And if it goes much beyond that, I have to start to break the transcript into chunks or it somehow kind of loses the thread, even though it does technically fit into the 100K context window. And then basically what I get out of that is like, okay, you know, I, I'm interested too in your, in kind of where you think the number of successes needs to be before people find it useful. You kind of said one in 50, you know, back in the earliest days. And now, you know, maybe you kind of alluded to like one in two or one in like a small number anyway. For me, more often than not, I end up doing a full rewrite. It still sometimes helps me to get some kind of boilerplate down and something to react to. You know, it's almost maybe, I don't know, I don't think we're quite to drinking game status on this yet, but I often refer to this Simpsons scene where Mr. Burns says, he's at an art unveiling and the art is unveiled and he says, I'm no art critic, but I know what I hate. And I do feel like I kind of behave that way sometimes where Claude 2 gives me something back and I'm like, that's not it, but it somehow gets me writing faster, even if it's not it. So that's kind of how I approach it with Claude 2. Uh, and, and sometimes I mess around with things like having it assess my writing style. It sounds like you're doing some of that also kind of give kind of a, like a critique or an assessment or, you know, just a, a description of the style before then trying to like go into that mode. I guess going over on the GPT side, the open AI side, this, I I'm finding these days, like dumping all the kind of instructions into the system message seems to be the thing to do. You know, any any coaching? How can I get my um, how can I get my little micro app that writes these intros to do a better job for me? So yeah, in GPT land, def yeah, definitely you don't use ChatGPT. Use uh, the playground. The system message does matter. So if you basically set the tone of like what kind of writer uh, you would like it to be, and so you describe your style. But I would say like the other thing to think about is um, if you're giving a very long prompt, uh, and I think the the, the, the there have been studies recently which is 
LLMs are kind of, it, with a really long prompt, it's basically just like ignore the middle. Kind of like a human would, right? Which kind of makes sense with our LHF. So the most important bits of that prompt will be at the beginning and the end. And especially the end. Um, so, for example, uh, how we prompt for style is that the style goes last. Because you really need that to be almost the tip of the pen. And so if you're putting any style information, I'll reemphasize it again right at the end. Be like, and write this in the style of blah, 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 blah. You, you describe your style in detail. And that will yield better results in getting it to follow this sort of tone and writing of what you want. Now, if you care less about the tone and more about the content, then, you know, you sort of uh, ignore that part and be like, okay, you just get to rewrite it anyway. Uh, that depends on kind of like your your workflow. But I'll say a lot of authors, yeah, they are, they're definitely rewriting <laughs> a lot of the things that are coming out. So here's the, here's the thing. I'm not sure if you're doing this, but if you're asking to not do something, sometimes it's like not great because then it will do the thing. <laughs> Uh, I call this the pink elephant syndrome. Don't think about pink elephant. You're going to think about pink elephant. So LLMs have this syndrome as well. If you say like, don't be overly cliche, it actually might be more cliche. So it might be better to just give statements or even random kind of by quotes that are not cliche at all. So that it gets into the latent space of like, okay, you want me to be in this like really creative space where I don't talk about cliches. Yeah, but it's a it's a tough wrangling thing. I mean, it, in the, in the evaluation part is tough, right? For text versus images. Right? I mean, images you can just yeah you see things that are just alt, and you're like I can firmly evaluate that. But if you're like generating paragraphs and paragraphs of this thing, like you don't want to be pushing that lever too many times. A baseline that we have uh, is to write is about one and two, that an author would use something that comes out fifty percent of the time. That's like the gold standard that we've had um, so far. Uh, but I think for individual basis, that number is just going to be much lower because you might be writing this prompt bespoke each time. You might not be dialed into a particular set of like instruction that you're like in. I think that's okay because you're sort of like interacting with this thing in the chat like kind of interface. But I would say if you want to get more repeatable is uh, to keep a spreadsheet of the prompts that work well for you and start iterating and making notes of like, okay, this wording makes it worse. It's me have to do this, you know, four times instead of two times and just start iterating that prompt over time until you have like this prompt that works really well for you, Nathan, right? Nathan prompt, right? Um, and so yeah, we're seeing a lot of authors who are, a lot of them use ChatGPT in tandem. So they all, they also have like a whole set of prompts that they keep for themselves <laughs> that works for the way that they work. And that may actually be a new practice for writing in general in the future, that you are not only sort of gardening your craft, but you have a whole garden of prompts that you're like constantly evolving that are working really well to LLMs that you love. That just may become a common practice. Yeah, I, that's a great transition into I think the second half of the conversation. And I, you know, want to kind of widen the the view from the app and all the you know the techniques. But before I do that, I just want to ask a couple little more things on the on the techniques. Um, how can you tell me a little bit more about kind of the background information processing that you are performing on the user's behalf? Like if I show up, let's say I have, you know, maybe a a draft already in a Google Doc or whatever, and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna come try this tool. And then the first thing I do is just paste in, you know, 
20 pages of like something I've already got. It sounds like you're doing a number of things to kind of figure out, okay, who is this person? How do they write? What is this? Like, what are the char- who are the characters that are in here? And I haven't actually done that exact workflow. So I haven't experienced, you know, how all that plays out. But it sounds like you're kind of coming in pretty hot and like processing that information to kind of synthesize a bunch of things. I'd love to hear more about that because that too, I think is something that may spark some, you know, creativity and others, you know, well beyond the the creative fiction realm. Yeah. So we have, uh, if you start with Story Engine, we have a brain dump field, which we've always made like freeform text that you can put anything in there, right? So yeah, whether it's like pages from your manuscript or even a Wikipedia article. And so um, we felt very strongly that it needs to be unstructured because I think, you know, as a writer, you can have all these random notes coming in, right? But then that's like the first step because then from there, essentially, if you want to try to replicate this with your, you know, plot too, it's like, how do you then get, because the AI is just really good at being able to start structuring these into a synopsis or like an outline. So just asking it for that and then just start putting that in, back into like the brain dump of what you have, it will get better and better like understanding of uh, the 50,000 foot view in a way that LLMs understand. So I think that's the major challenge. I mean, I think our minds work very associatively, but when you're writing, you have to linearize it. And when you're writing with an LLM, you not only have to linearize it, but you have to like hierarchically linearize it. So I would say if you, for your own purposes, you may want to keep your own silos of like, okay, this is the 50,000 foot view of what you're writing. This is the now like a, a closer up view. So each time getting closer all the way down to the leaves, because if you, once you have all of that sort of filled out, you can then pick which fidelity to give to the LOM at the right time. And that's kind of what we're doing in our, in our backend. And I would say it's still very, I would say it's still V1 and kind of like, we were always improving that process. It's really tough uh, to pick the right fidelity uh, so to get the AI to understand for this particular task. But I think that's useful writing hacking in general, right? So you should be able to know, kind of like keep your thesis in mind for this essay that you're writing, uh, but also know like in this particular section, how is it building to that thesis, but how is it also like introducing new questions or new information that is going to get the reader to want to read more? right? Continue reading, right? Um, there's always a tension between those two things, right? No, no silver bullet there. I, I think that in the interesting part is that you can get LLM to help you create these kind of like sub doc, these different fidelity documents, which will actually help you. Because I think you reading that and parsing that yourself um, will give you a better understanding of what you're trying to achieve with the piece, right? Because I think thinking hierarchically will unlock like, oh, wow, maybe this is not even the right thesis. It's better that you know that earlier than later, right? So I actually saw a lot of, a lot of our users like, when they go on Strange and they're like, oh, wow, I now understand like maybe my novel is not what I think it's really about. I need to question myself. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I imagine too, you know, one thing that the language models are so good at is adopting all these different perspectives I almost wonder if you could create like a focus group style feedback where you could provide like a whole bunch of different perspectives. I haven't done this on creative stuff so much, but done a little bit of experimenting with like, if I tell the language model, you know, that it's a person and it has a certain belief, you know, is it able to kind of come up with correlated beliefs that, you know, a person likely would have depending on, you know, what we 
kind of generally know goes together in people. And it is pretty good at that. So I, I kind of suspect that you could, you know, kind of call forth like a bunch of different perspectives on uh, a piece of work and give people like a sort of diversified, you know, feedback that they otherwise might really struggle to get. And again, that's probably just an interesting technique in general that, you know, that extends well beyond um, creative writing. Are there any settings, you know, this is again, very technical, but you know, people who listen to this are many of them are like building stuff. Obviously, different language models are a big deal. It sounds like you're not yet into the open source and, and fine tuning those, but likely coming. Are there any settings or other kind of techniques or tricks that you find to be particularly relevant? Like I assume you have temperature up. Um, I wonder if there's like a different temperature setting, you know, do, does like OpenAI versus Anthropic demand different temperature settings. Top P is also one I used to use mostly to eliminate crazy long tail stuff. I'm guessing you don't want to uh, drop your top P at all. But anything in that vein you think is kind of interesting or, or might show the way to others? Yeah, as for temperature, yeah, we do keep it relatively high, but we also have a low knob to give the user to dial that in. Yeah, changing top P temperature does help uh, kind of shape these things, but they also like have confounding effects with each other. So that's the other thing. It's like so multivariate at that point. Like for example, if uh, you just put temperature like really low, you, then you probably need to start fussing with like your frequency penalties and your uh, presence penalties because it can create sorts of problems like for, uh, repetition or it can introduce other problems. Um, so I would say if there's any advice, I would say like if you're fussing with one thing, you be aware that it may degrade performance for another thing that you're not even aware of, right? So, yeah, so even for us, like we're very, we're very cautious about changing temperatures and, and changing these uh, settings once we have it sort of dialed in. But we do a lot of testing of these things um, to get statistical significance on whether things are good or not uh, for some definition of good, whether it's like user actions and various other things. But it's, it's tough because yeah, for creative writing, you really do want off the wall ideas. Like hallucinations are great, <laughs> like in, in our world, right? Um, so keeping temperature relatively high and really the big challenge that I see for creative writing is cliches. It's like getting the LLM to not be cliche is a harder task. Uh, especially with RLHF. Temperature is not, you know, top, even top P, like the, it's not like one hammer that will like fix that. And, you know, fine tuning is another option too, but that has its down, downsides as well, where it can get too dialed into a particular like world, right? And kind of the richness of uh, having the full, the full gamut is, uh, is lost there. So yeah, I would say I would have like a very like dialed in kind of like one, one silver bullet there as well. It's really like you need to experiment a lot um, and take notes. Uh, it's not an easy, it's not a trivial thing if you want to make it repeatably like good for you. So are you still paying six cents per thousand on the original DaVinci? They haven't changed the price on that still, have they? Yeah, I don't think they have. Um, but most of our workload now has moved to either GPT-4 or Turbo. Um, so, uh, but there are definitely some things, yeah, that are, uh, are, are still, yes, I think it's, I think it's six cents. Yeah. They haven't changed that pricing. Although I think with the new, I think you're introducing a new model, right? The, the turbo instruct, which may be a little cheaper as well. 
but yeah, that's the other challenge, the economic challenge. Uh, how do we uh, balance context windows and model choices while keeping our prices sort of affordable for the average writer? That is a whole nother, <laughs> probably a whole nother podcast of like, how do you even tune these things uh, for pricing? Yeah, there's a, certainly a lot um, that goes into it. I mean, most folks, I think, still kind of have the luxury of being like, just use the best model and then figure it out later. And, you know, we've seen enough of the price drops and, you know, can probably assume that more, yet more price drops are on the way. Although, you know, if you're attached to an earlier model and I've been there too, where it's like, yeah, I don't really want to, I have a, like a fine tune thing that's working really well. And the fine tune, you know, one even goes, um, oh, it's not six. It's now down to two. They had dropped it to two, but the fine-tuned is still 12. So yeah, excuse my um, mistake. Um, still 10 times, even the base DaVinci, I believe, is still 10 times more than the latest like Turbo. So it's you know non-trivial difference. But yeah, they, they did a two-thirds drop before the 90% drop. Yeah, the way... That it, the cost thing, I think, is, is definitely super interesting. The context does get long. You know, the Claude one at 100,000 tokens, it's like, yeah, that sounds great. You can fit the whole Great Gatsby into it. But every time you click that button, you're looking at, you know, potentially it can be a, you know, can be a dollar, right, per generation if you really stuff the whole thing in there. <laughs> Sledgehammer to write one paragraph. So yeah, that's, uh, you know, that can be non-economical pretty quickly. Your comments about the kind of frequency penalty and whatnot too. I think is that mostly an old model thing. Like I guess what I would, how I would summarize my experience today is, I guess for starters. What is temperature? What is top P? If folks don't know, temperature is the parameter that governs how the final token is chosen based on the distribution that is generated by the model. Because the model at every step is not just generating a token, right? And most people probably will know this, but instead it's generating a distribution over all possible tokens, which could be like one on one token and zero on everything else, but generally speaking, is much more, you know, kind of long tail than that. And so then you have the question, well, do I just take the most likely token every time? That's temperature zero. Or do I kind of sample from this distribution proportional to the relative numbers? I believe that's temperature one, although I'm this stuff is not super well yeah, I think you can go above temperature one as well. The way I understand that is that you're then sampling even more from the tail than it's like weights would naively suggest. And then top P is basically saying, okay, I may want to eliminate super long tail, you know, super unlikely things from being selected. Maybe I do want to have some diversity in my choices. I don't just always want to take the most likely token. But if there's something that's like under 1% likely, then I just don't want to consider that at all. If you want that kind of behavior, then you can bring the top P down to say 0.99. Then by definition, anything that is you know smaller than that, that delta is just not considered at all. Typically today, that takes me far enough with the frontier models. And I would say only in kind of the earlier models have I needed to really mess with the like frequency penalty and, and those other kind of Things does that jive with your experience too? Yeah, mo mostly. I think presence penalty is powerful uh, because if you want to to write things that are not sort of present in the prompt, right, um, it is helpful. But yeah, I would say overall though, it, it matters much more what's in the prompt than these parameter tunings. 
tuning these parameters to like micro uh micro settings right and that in breadth is like the bigger a higher order like influence um to the quality of the output use cases are everything you know i, I most of the stuff i do is is about trying to get the job done you know right and in your case it's uh the job is writing and it's uh, definitely opens up a lot of um, different considerations so okay thank you for indulging me in some of this detailed stuff i think it is uh you know can be a little bit tedious to wade through but hopefully people take away from it you know some tips and tricks that they can use as they're building their own projects even if those are just things that they're you know often building for themselves or a few teammates Turning then to the big picture. So I guess maybe for starters, I'd love to hear your vision of kind of the future of creativity. You alluded a little bit to it with the Centaur, maybe also the future of entertainment. One thing that really struck me from the website is like, hey, with PseudoWrite, you can get a full novel written in a week or maybe even just hours. It's striking that, you know, in that case, certainly the AI is doing a significant amount of the actual, you know, banging out line by line that may, people may have all sorts of feelings about that. And the quality may, you know, vary widely. But notably, that is kind of opening up a possibility of like the content can get generated faster than we can consume it. And so there's kind of this potential inversion of like, instead of, you know, creative content always kind of being one to many, I'm really curious about this possibility where it can become kind of one-to-one or even like choose your own adventure. But I'm putting too many words in your mouth. So forget what I said and just tell me what your vision for kind of the future of creativity and entertainment is. You know, today, you know, Sudra is serving customers who are capital W writers, right? I mean, these are professional writers or they're self-pubbed or, but they consider themselves as writers. I think in the sort of medium term, these LLMs do open up the possibility that, hey, if you never even consider writing a story or a novel, tools like Sudorite can help you achieve that writing goal that, you know, maybe was ever out of reach, or maybe you didn't have uh, all this craft knowledge that you had before. Uh, what we're hoping is that through using tools like ours, that you also, you will upgrade your craft along the way because you'll see a lot of storytelling tricks that are happening in sort of the foundations there. Now, if you go even further in the future, yeah, I think that there will probably be a possibility of this one-to-one um, kind of thing happening. I just, you know, I have a seven-year-old uh, and, you know, he, you know, we use GPT sometimes to do storytelling and just like play around with it and just like tell bedtime stories. One thing to consider is that, you know, when you're a seven-year-old, the things in the world are default. So he's coming into a world where these intelligent agents are default. You know, they're not new. <laughs> they are things that are like, yeah, of course, dad, uh, AIs can storytell. Of course, they can paint too, but I can do it too. You know, I could, he's like, he loves drawing. He also loves telling stories, uh, but he doesn't have this like sort of adversarial relationship with it. He's like, oh, but maybe the computer can help me or maybe I can flesh out some ideas. Right. So I think that w- there will, and, and it can do that at sort of scale and personalized. So I think there's this sort of, um, I think there's a few things I'll play out. One thing is uh, the sort of like a uh, uh, personal kind of craft, not scaled kind of uh, media production. For example, I recently had a uh, through a birthday party for my for my son for it's like Zelda theme, and I created like a whole AI video where she incorporated his face on Zelda, and like it was a scavenger hunt. AI voice, you know, AI voice like Zelda was talking. You know, the kids were like, oh my God, they know, how is Zelda on my name? You know, like, 
I'm not going to share this, right? This is really only just for me and the other kids that came to the party, right? But this is something I would not be able to do before, right? Um, I wouldn't have hired like voice actors to play Zelda for this, you know, but with AI, there's all this is like possible. So I think that for this like, kind of like micro kinds of media, where it's not, it's not about like sharing it to the world, it's possible now. And that's, that's pretty cool. And I think that there will, maybe, maybe that won't necessarily be like fully like monetized in like a scalable way, but I think it would just be like akin to like making your own uh, website. It's like very easy to do. Now I think at the other end of the spectrum, yeah, we'll there possibly be the rise of like uh, a parallel track of novels or films which are fully AI generated, or at least like it's like AI generated but with a producer, a human producer at, in the, in the middle of that. And I think that you know, you're, to to your point about content being uh, writing content more fascinating you can read. I mean, we're sort of at that space, right? right? You can't read everything. You can't, uh, you can't like watch every film, right? But I think that will probably even emergence of like a film created just for you, Nathan, right? It just, just like, oh, this is, uh, uh, it has your interest in mind. You know, that is a possibility, right? I'm not fully bought into that will happen at scale still. I think it will be still a little niche um, to do that just because I think there is a water cooler effect of like, in that world, we will still seek out uh, uh, things created and directed and sort of like produced by humans, right? Not just fully automated. And I think that there is something to that where we will still look at parenting of films, right? Um, so I think it will be parallel track. Uh, beyond that, I think it's a little harder to make kind of predictions there. Uh, I wouldn't pause it to say like, it's all going to be like AI general, all it will just like all that. It's probably somewhere, I think the truth will stuff be somewhere in the middle. And maybe there will be a rise of a different kind of media that only be possible via AI, whether it's like, yeah, choose your adventure or like a fully immersive game that's generated on the fly that has a particular reality. And it's just like impossible to be like, have humans creating that on the fly. Um, but I think there will still be books. There will still be films. There will still be people writing books, the quote unquote old fashioned way, uh, the old fashioned way using it, using Pseudorite. Um, <laughs> but in that world, yeah, it's still stringing together. I think that it's very lindy, you know, these things that, you know, things have been able to like kill books all the time, but actually reading has gone up. If you look at the past, like few years, book sales have been gone up, right? Even in the, in this world where TikTok and all these that, that kind of things exist, I think that will still be a cornerstone in culture. Yeah. I, I always say everything everywhere all at once for kind of all of this stuff. Um, so I totally agree that there's not like one you know, outcome in all likelihood that everything, you know, coalesces into, but rather even more diversity and choice in media than we already have, which is already pretty extreme. Your comment about kind of the blurring of the line. And I mean, I guess in, in creative writing, this is like, this line is already pretty blurry for a lot of people, right? But I think this, this idea of the blurring of the line between like, what is sort of quote unquote productive or like economically, you know, valued work versus just kind of the similar, you know, maybe even same activity that is leisure. I expect that to be a pretty interesting development. And I feel like you're kind of right at the center of it in as much as, you know, if a lot of jobs that people don't want to do can become largely automated. And there I think about, you know, you know, not that many people like want to get up and go work at a call center all day and take, you know, 
30 calls an hour that are largely repetitive or whatever. Let's say there's nobody. But you know, I, I sort of see a lot of that kind of stuff going away. And then there's this kind of fear that like, we just sort of consume, 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 and we become like extremely passive and, you know, kind of low agency. And this feels like, you know, it feels like there is kind of a, a positive vision in here somewhere of like, you know, being creative kind of to the degree that you want, like being exploratory, having stuff that's kind of interactive, generating stuff for you that's engaging and interesting, but also giving you opportunity and, you know, to shape it, to craft it directly, to, you know, choose options and and kind of explore in a way that's still like meaningful. I'm really interested in in that space. You know, how are, how are people going to... I mean, it's a big assumption, obviously, that like a lot of jobs are going to go away. But I do think a lot of jobs are going to go away. That's not to say that necessarily employment, you know, drops because we may sort of classify a lot of new things as as jobs in some sense, um, like creating these, you know, bespoke birthday parties for your, you know, neighborhood uh, kids. But yeah, I do think we need to kind of develop this vision for like, what is a positive, you know, interaction mode that we can have? How are we going to spend our time in kind of relationship to all these new AI tools that isn't about like purely eliminating or purely being more productive, but is kind of a new, like fun way to be and explore. So I really love that you're, you know, kind of creating that and also doing it in the context of writing. It's kind of meta uh, in that respect. Are there things that you would recommend that we check out? I always lament that positive visions of an AI future are like pretty few and far between. Uh, but you strike me as one of the people that I should be asking, you know, what should I read or engage with, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, a novel or otherwise to inspire myself, you know, about what the future might look like? That's a good question. I, 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 I love sci-fi. <laughs> I, I feel like sci-fi is like this meta thing because a lot of the people who are creating technology are reading it. And so that it sort of like comes out. Um, in the products, like they are like designed from these worlds, which were actually a lot, a lot written, you know, 40, 50 years ago. So yeah, I would, I would say like, it's not, if you want to like discover, I mean, sure, you can go on Twitter and see all these like demos of new AI things. I think it's hard to, there's, there's so much noise there, right? So I actually like reading like, you know, older books to see like, oh, what, what were sort of the visions of the future there? Because I think it's easier than to extrapolate like what would be, you know, 30 years from now, if you look at like what people thought it was going to be, you know, whether it's reading like Gibson, you know, or reading different sci-fi, you know, like a, a, a three body problem, you know, just exposing yourself to different, some very different points of view, uh, both culturally as well, I think can widen kind of what can't see is like the bubble of AI. This is your sort of point about elimination of like skills, right? And jobs that are necessary. It's kind of funny because I do think novel writing will still be there. <laughs> uh, so it's funny enough that maybe in one version of this future, like we can just indulge our creative pursuits, right? And think that, or at least give more time to them, right? So I think that we run positive outcome here. But I think the other point about a lot of these AI systems is like controllability especially like the earlier versions of all these things, whether you're talking about mid-journey, where you're talking about, where you're talking about Sudorite or ChatGPT, it's like we're still in this pre-iPhone 
moment. And maybe ChatGPT is sort of an iPhone moment, but I still think that there will be another iPhone moment where an AI totally understands your brain state and understands your intent and can do it and you can control it and not feel like the slot machine. Because I think once we get to that point where we have this sort of melding, I think it solves a lot of problems and kind of like agency. So I think that you can now fully express kind of like what you want to create, right? And you can also fully express as, you know, person on the job, like kind of the jobs that need to be done, right? But you have put humans in the control of that. Now, I'm not sure how that squares with, well, if the AI just does all the programming for us and we just like take the human totally out of that loop, I do have some worries about that. Uh, probably not not to the same spectrums of doomerisms uh, that are out there, but I think so, at least some humans should be <laughs> in that loop directing something, uh, but there'll probably be less uh, folks there. So that is a problem that we will need to contend with. Uh, there's always this joke that like, oh, a lot of artists are up in arms about you know, mid-journey, but then all the programmers are like, ah, oh, finally. I don't have to write an unit test anymore. Yeah, I can just do that, right? <laughs> but there's a little bit of danger in that too. I think that we need to, we need to be able to, I think, understand these systems, and maybe it's not understanding at the leaf level, but it can have a core understanding as some fidelity in that chain. I think that will be important going forward. There's a notion, I guess, it's kind of presented in some cases as an AI safety agenda called cyborgism, which is uh, kind of along the lines of what you're discussing here uh, that might be of interest to folks to go check out. And it's kind of what Elon Musk said was the motivation for starting Neuralink as well. You know, it's the idea that we need the, you know, we need to be, first of all, able to communicate with machine systems at a higher bandwidth than we currently do. And, you know, potentially with higher fidelity to our, you know, internal mental states, then we can capture with language. Um, so, yeah, the future could get very weird in in those regards. I I save this kind of to the end because I, you know, I don't think it like defines your story by any means. But I do want to touch on the experience that you had when I first reached out to you. I think it was maybe two to three months ago. Now you launched a big update to pseudo right and put out a video, you know, nine minutes or so on Twitter showing some of the new features and how it works. And it was an interesting thing because, you know, if I had seen that in total isolation, I would have been like, cool product, you know, one of lots of things that are coming out that are using AI and, you know, a thoughtful implementation, certainly of like how to apply these tools to the storytelling task. And yet that went pretty, you know, at least for a minute, went pretty sideways for you when I guess, I mean, you tell me why you think it happened, but um, timing, you know, is maybe an issue. And all of a sudden people were like, you know, this guy is, you know, public enemy number one of writers. So I'd love to just hear that story kind of from your perspective and see if there's anything that we can learn from that. Uh, because it certainly seems like, you know, the kind of thing that I don't know if people are getting canceled anymore by the, you know, the woke mobs that some folks used to be concerned about. But now there there may be an, you know, anti-AI uh, contingent out there looking to to cancel people. So, yeah, tell me how that all went down. Well, it's my first time really getting canceled. I, I was definitely got dogpiled there for a while. Yeah, I still stand by that demo. 
I stand by what I said. Uh, I, I think if I were to update with at least a little bit of nuance, it's I would say this is great at the first draft. It's not about writing the entire novel. And if you want to, I mean, so this is the other thing. There's this division is maybe more complex than than even just anti AI and AI. I think that there are also shades of like uh, we have a lot of indie writers who are using us, and actually their audiences, a lot of them like they actually know that they're using AI assistants for help. And they're like, this is great. You can write like 20 books instead of 10 books a year. Give me more of this, you know? So there is really seeing that feedback and being like, hey, it's really capturing your tone well. Um, and, you know, and I think there were there were a lot of folks out there who were saying like, oh, how could you even find any novelist to even work with you? We worked, literally work with hundreds of novelists who were begging for this product, right? So I think that's the that was the other thing they want to say I was lost in the in, in this um in this tweet. It's just like it wasn't this product was not born out of just my mind and, and isolation, just like everything else. We worked hand in hand with novelists uh who were literally some of them like cried tears of joy when they actually got this in their hands, right? So um it's stark contrast then with some of the reactions out there. Now, that being said, I un totally understand this third rail that's happening right now. You know, um, I don't, you know, writers are not you know, getting paid, compensated uh, well enough. For example, in definitely in the, uh, what's happening in Hollywood right now, it looks like there's some deal that's going through. I think that's part of that timing and maybe the nuance in that video, which was lost. And I think that writers should be compensated. They should be compensated fairly for the work that they are uh, making. But I think that that, the question of that, it, it should be separated from the tools that they use, right? So Zura is always, it's a tool. It's not, we're not out here to replace writers. We're out here to create tools in cost of writers who are giving us feedback all the time about, you know, how, uh, how this helps their lives and, you know, lets them be more creative. You know, that was the largest, uh, we got, we had so many uh, influx of new users as well from that awareness as well. Of like, wow, this kind of tool actually even exists. And even if they don't, you know, a lot of authors are not using us in that kind of way, right? So some of them are using us in a very AI maximalist way, where they are writing like whole scenes and rewriting them to lots of things. Like some of us also are just using it in a very like brainstorming way. Just like, okay, what do you think of the scene? Not even using any words that are coming out of it. So I would like to say, like, yeah, it's very diverse. As diverse as people using Photoshop. Back in the day, we also saw that sort of backlash too. Uh, but is digital art really art? No one questions that today, right? You can find a few. <laughs> uh, and I don't see that's happening with my journeys and sort of like art generation. But I, I, I love to sh shine a light on the creatives who are pairing this with their craft, right? And like, how can we build a tool that is mindful to that as well? And also pointing them in directions and in, 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 in increasing their craft. For example, we also run weekly classes um, with writers to talk about how to use student write for your writing, but also just talking about how do you become a better creative writer. Uh, so we're already invested in this space. I've been doing, you know, we haven't pivoted. You know, we've uh, Ahmed and I are both fiction writers, and we, you know, built this. We keep keep on building this thing from the core thesis for three years. You know, and we're going to keep building this. You know, because we are really seeing that this is. I think that creative writers will see these kinds of tools as. Uh, maybe not default, like indispensable thing, but it's just like using any other writing tool like Grammarcheck. But it was definitely an experience <laughs> getting, getting, getting dogpiled, but it definitely sort of also renewed my seeing the 
folks on the other side, I mean, being like, whoa, can I not talk about like me using AI for writing in the public? And that kind of stuff really, that's, that's really concerning that there is like, this like wish hunt happening in the author world where they are just trying to out these authors as using AI. And I think that is just like, I think that will be a transitionary state as well. That is happening. I mean, that's where that's where things happening out there in these groups and enclaves. Do you think? I mean, the timing, obviously, because this was kind of I don't know, it was like the earliest days of the writer strike, but at least there was you know it was underway at the time that you put this tweet out. It seems like that's probably the biggest variable. And then I guess, do you know? Like, trying to understand what is really happening here is this. Like, who's responding to you? Are these... Because um, I did an episode, you know, which I sent you uh, to try to win a little, you know, trust from you to get uh, to, to get you, you know, comfortable to do this in the first place. We did an episode with a couple, uh, three members of the WGA and kind of talked to them about, you know, what their AI-related concerns are and also how they're using it in their own practice. And, you know, the three possibly biased, you know, sample of, of those that were up for coming on and... AI podcast, but they were not at all like hostile to technology. It seemed like their thing was really just, you know, we don't want AI to start getting assigned like certain contractually defined roles that have payment (laughs) rights attached to them. And so it seemed like they were pretty, you know, if they could get that kind of agreement, they were going to be pretty content to continue to experiment with all sorts of. AI tools. Do you have a sense for like, to what degree the reaction that you got was driven by people who are like, actually writers versus just kind of general internet vitriol? And, you know, aside from timing, you kind of mentioned a little bit of like, more nuance, maybe the the thing would be to emphasize more like, you know, the kind of uh, it starts with why type thing, like, why are you doing this, who you are, your own passion for writing, and storytelling at the top is the reaction that you got something that you think really comes from writers or does it just kind of come from like general internet culture and second what would you say to future ai product uh, builders you know when it comes time to put things out in the public what can they learn from your experience to try to minimize the risk of any of that kind of blowback coming their way yeah, I just I think the top the, the the high order bit is Twitter, or X. Um, I, it's just like there's no there's a most most I was you know looking at the analytics of people watching the video like like zero percent basically like ninety nine percent watched the first like five seconds which had like basically no content right so it's mostly I think the the mechanism of retweeting and tweet docking uh, that got this place and it's interesting because I think there's probably it was probably on the tip of like a few people retweeting the right verbiage that got the dunkers to come in and if they hadn't tweeted it maybe it would have just been kind of like a semi not even a viral tweet right so i think there's a mechanisms in in the structure of the social media that um caused this issue i think that a lot of them were our writers um but i would say mixed right there were probably writers and also just general internet uh, kind of dumping happening but i mean i became sort of just a poster child of like oh this is the ai uh ai bro coming right <laughs> uh to take all our writing jobs away nothing i could have at, at that point it was 
just uh, there's nothing you can do with that kind of deluge, right? Just, uh, you cannot re- reply to every tweet. I was thinking, if, in terms of advice, uh, maybe Twitter is not always the right, <laughs> uh, not always the right conduit um, for these kinds of announcements. I would say also like putting customers first. I, I think that if, we're, if I were to redo it, maybe having one of our customers talk about like how they use this in their workflow to maybe look. Like, humanize it a bit more to be like, okay, this is an actual use case. It's not like I'm just contriving it out of thin air. So I do wonder if also just like I patterned it after like, oh, Twitter demos for the tech people. It's like, okay, we just like take this demo, but we don't take it like at sort of face value. It's just like, okay, this is like a demo of what could, how could it be done? I would say like, if you actually have a real, showcase an actual real problem and if you can with the customer, I think that would be, uh, uh, that's even more uh, wise there. Have you raised capital? Are you hiring a team? Or are you guys just bootstrapping this uh, as your own passion project? What's the story there? Yeah, uh, we raised a small round in 2021. Um, and we have a small team, seven folks, including me. Uh, so four developers. And we're profitable. So uh, ever, since, ever since March. So we're sort of in this place where I want to build a team mindfully and you know, find folks who are, you know, like actually, uh, I think three or four of our developers are like have English degrees. You know, they come from that world, right? Who are, who are also writers. Uh, so we're looking to really just like grow mindfully and just really focus on this particular problem. And now we have the latitude to sort of do that uh, with kind of our structure in place. When this storm hit, it varies a lot. You know, your experience and kind of what you have to do varies a lot, depending on whether it's just you or you've got a team that you're, you know, representing and who's looking to you for answers. What did you do? Did you just kind of keep your head down generally and let the storm pass? Or was there anything else that was useful? It's tough. I mean, when you're, when you're in a dog pile like that, you, the, the one thing you want to do is to reply to everyone. Uh, but we, we basically kept our heads down uh, and just really go and focus on our customers. Because, you know, they're the ones who they're coming in. We've got so many requests, feature requests and things like that. So really just building and focusing on the writers who are using us um, and getting our team to focus on that. Obviously, a little bit hard when I'm just like, wow, this little rectangle is now like screaming at me <laughs> all the time. Um, but I feel like, yeah, I, I definitely uh, became a little more resilient <laughs> after that experience. So I would say that if, you're, if anyone else is in that same position, it's like, it's the internet. It's structural. It's how the the incentives mechanisms and these kinds of uh, social media apps are made. And it also made me mindful of also being a dunker, right? I mean, just like you see all these opportunities to dunk. Just don't don't do that. <laughs> like there and it, and actually in that in that world, there were folks who had more nuanced um, discussion on Twitter, which I appreciated. Um, who I actually had conversations that were not like a screaming fest. Um, so I looked for those folks. Um, as well. First of all, it's awesome. And congratulations that you're profitable um, with the company. I imagine that like your actual paying customers little noticed this or like barely cared, right? I imagine it didn't have a big impact on the business. No, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. I think someone posted in our, uh, in our uh, community Slack about it. And a lot of people were like, wait, what, what's happening? (laughs) The impact on the business is that we, this is part of the reason why we are profitable. (laughs) <laughs> we got it. We got a lot of exposure from that tweet, um, and it'll actually expose a lot of writers. I, I think there, in all in, in any of these vitriol, I think uh, uh, on the internet, there's always a big middle like population who are not saying anything, and they're like, 
let me check this service out and let me make up my own mind about, you know, whether I want to use it or not. Right. So that that's the hit, but they're not tweeting. They're not retweeting. Right. Um, so I think that's the other thing to keep in mind uh, as a founder of a company that you're not hearing from a lot of people. You're hearing mostly from people who are on their phone at this particular time and have a particular agenda. Another question I have for you, because of your success monetizing the app and also just this this moment where you got this like surge of visibility, traffic, you know, probably new trial users, you know, some of them paying customers, I'm sure, but probably many were just kind of like, let me just hit the free trial button and, you know, generate something and kind of just see what it's all about. I think that's a challenge for a lot of AI app developers right now. It's like the, most of the ones I talk to are kind of like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of interest. We, you know, have maybe had a viral moment or two or, you know, whatever, or some minor ones. So we're like getting people that are interested in us. That's, you know, my company, Waymark, we've had kind of, I'd say two viral moments this year, not as big as yours, but definitely big, um, you know, by certainly any, you know, by any standard, any previous standard of just like tweeting about the product, you know, we went a lot further than we had in the past. Yet then what, you know, we've kind of seen and what has happened to a lot of others too is like, you have a lot of people that just come through, try the free trial. If you are using a kind of expensive model, you know, and you're trying to, which if you're trying to deliver like a premium experience today, you probably are using a model that has, you know, somewhat non-trivial cost, right? For, for each user that comes in. And then you have this kind of, okay, well, how do I, where do I draw the line? How do I, when do I insist that people pay so that this is like econo- economically sustainable for me or for the business? And then you also have a lot of churn problems, or at least most of the apps that I talk to do, because yours may be an exception to this, because I can imagine writing might be more of like a lifestyle, you know, where people are just really into it on a, on a long-term basis. With Waymark, we have, you know, small businesses that create videos. And a lot of times they're like, I need one now. I don't know when I'm going to need one again. So I'll subscribe so I can do the thing. And then I'll immediately cancel because I got what I needed for now. And I can always kind of reactivate later. So, I mean, to some degree, this is timeless, like SaaS business problems. But I do think it's a little bit different in the world of AI, particularly because two things. One, we're having these like viral spikes everywhere right now. And two, you have this kind of not huge, you can kind of stomach it, but like non-trivial token cost. And it creates like an even more kind of high stakes question of like how and when and how aggressively do I monetize? So I'd love to get your thoughts on that too. Because uh, it sounds like you've dealt with all of it. What you touched on is like, yeah, it is a SaaS problem. I think that AI, yeah, AI companies are still startups. I mean, it, 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 a lot of it still just depends on distribution. Just your the age old thing of like reducing your churn. Uh, it's not necessarily about like model choice and all these things that uh, we talk about on Twitter <laughs> all the time, which are important, but they're also just like foundational things. Like, are you pricing your your service properly? Are you capturing enough value there? Are you providing enough value to those users? Are those users actually like uh, telling other users about your product, right? So I think that this whole panoply of like startup advice and SaaS advice that still runs through the AI. AI is not like a panacea. You just don't sprinkle that emoji sparkle thingy and suddenly your <laughs> company just takes off. So I think that is a big divide between, I think a lot of people see these Twitter demos and they're like, oh, so cool it's so awesome man users are gonna like eat that up but the gulf between taking that demo to making a profitable business is immense right um and 
I think it really still comes down to, do you know your customer well? I think that's the biggest thing. And like, do you also know that domain well, or, or, or get advice or just like, or become an expert in that to become an indispensable tool, right? That is used often. I think that's the kind of like what you what you're talking on the the, the the churn problem, because I think a lot of these AI ideas are not viable because of not viable businesses. Maybe they are like great as a demo, but if it's not repeatable customers who have a hair on fire problem, you still run into the problem. As he says, it can be even worse because the consumption model of these AI the margins are like worse, right? Because uh, imagine if your database costed like 30 cents for every row that you like <laughs> save, right? And it's kind of like, and you're doing it every single time every update, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? So that's the other, the unique challenge of AI is like, how do you tune uh, like your context windows, like how many free like um, uh, inferences you give to the trial users. So you had to pay a lot more attention to that than a regular SaaS would pay attention to their database costs uh, because it's just like it scales more easily per customer. And so we do a lot of that. We do a lot of tuning. But one one thing that we have stuck to is that we've taken more of an Apple-like approach, which is, hey, we're going to give you the best models. We're using the best top-of-the-line models, latest state-of-the-art, but you're going to have to pay a little bit more for that. We're stuck to that. So I think that's that. Uh, and I think that you should in your that's one philosophy that you need to like figure out whether it is that you're going to use state of the art models or are you going to be like okay i want to give you a lot of volume or maybe bring your own key or doing other things like that i think you need to like be very crisp about that uh because otherwise you just do sort of random things here and there i think you should top down figure out that philosophy because that will determine your audience uh, and you want to be mindful about choosing an audience of like, okay, are you going after prosumers or more like professional folks who are willing to pay? Or are you going for like more consumer types of experiences where, man, you're going to have to have a lot, a lot of consumers, right? Uh, to make that kind of work. Um, I think for us, we're a little bit in the middle, but we skew more towards like the prosumer professionals who are uh, working writers and they're, you know, they're working day in, day out using our, using our tool on a daily basis. Personally, I find that to be an easier space <laughs> uh, to be in um, because then you can actually charge for value, right? Uh, that you're actually providing. It's still not easy, even with yeah, with AI. And a lot of a lot of times, it's funny because I'm like working on for some cool like new AI futuristic feature, but then other times I'm just like, man, I just need to make our like flow for the pricing better. It's like this is not like rocket science, but you do need to work at it. Uh, those kinds of things that are just like normal startup things. Here's a kind of speculative question. I've been starting to circulate this among some uh, AI app developers because of this kind of high token cost. Like for us at Waymark, somebody comes through, first thing they do is they, they set up like a small business profile. And then once they have that set up, they can kind of generate videos that use that profile plus their like runtime instructions. Setting up the profile kind of takes a certain amount of fixed cost, if you will, of the AI. Actually, a lot of it that is on the uh, image understanding side. And we actually should ask you too about possible multimodal uh, extensions of your product in the future. But okay, we have that one fixed cost, and then as you generate each video, there's you know some AI model cost with that too. 
we kind of figure it's something like 15 cents per, you know, random user that comes and does the free trial. And then we're like, yeah, what, you know, what our retail price, whatever, if it's 30 bucks and we need kind of one and 200 to, you know, subscribe to like pay, you know, for all the usage that we have for the other, you know, 199. And obviously those, you know, things can kind of, uh, everything's connected by springs to each other. It seems like somehow, but I do think that kind of sucks. So I've been dreaming of this idea of the AI bundle, which is kind of what you you mentioned, like bring your own token, which is another kind of angle on it. One big challenge, of course, is like most people don't have a token. You know, they've used ChatGPT. You don't get a token from ChatGPT. You got to be on the platform to do that. So, you know, right off the bat, if you're asking people to like bring their own token, most of the time, you know, most writers, you know, most small business owners are just going to be like, don't have one. What's that? So there's a couple of different ways you could kind of orchestrate something like this. But I've been thinking about this notion of the AI bundle where maybe, you know, taking inspiration from a cable bundle, you could set something up where the average consumer gets to say, okay, I'm going to subscribe to, you know, tier A, tier B or tier C, whatever, you know, maybe for a hundred bucks a month, I get some baseline access to a thousand apps. And then you as an app developer, if you participate in the, in the bundle, and again, this could obviously get complicated, but let's just say for a simple starter, you know, you get 10 cents as one in 1,000 apps that constitute this, you know, $100 bundle. And then what you have to do is maybe give all those users that come in, you know, for that free trial, you kind of have to give them like your base plan, which you have like a, a 30,000 word initial starter plan. And obviously, again, all this could kind of fuss around. But I wonder, would you be interested in participating in, in something like that? If somebody could say, hey, I'm going to go sell a million people on a bundle, you know, that, tr- that would translate into basically, you know, t- 10 cents a month. That basically translates into like a million dollars annual revenue for the participating companies. You could still ups- you know, upsell them to your premium plan or whatever, you know, once they kind of get beyond the bundle uh, limits. But you would kind of serve whoever comes in that's a bundle subscriber and you would just get kind of more consistent revenue. That way you can welcome those people, hopefully with more, you know, open arms and more access. They can get more value without hitting like super early limits. Uh, you you have to worry less about kind of churn from these like pop in, pop out users. Probably also have to worry less about kind of managing these viral moments, you know, which can be good and bad and a kind of weird mix where it should be, it should be all good, but in some ways it's not necessarily always all good. Do you think you'd be interested in participating in that kind of bundle as a app developer? That sounds super interesting. Obviously that was in details and like, what is the share of sort of payouts and how does that work? I mean, maybe this is actually just like a cable network, right? <laughs> it's like a cable in- inference cable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my because people love their cable bundle so much, you know, I'm, I'm trying to uh no more screening, right? Go back to cable box. <laughs> um cuz it's kind of like the streaming model today, right? In uh in AI. Yeah, I think that that's interesting. I think I would have questions of like, well, it might be more diffuse, right? The people who are they may not all be like fiction writers, right? Obviously. Uh but I guess it depends on like I guess you need to get to a certain size to make that work out uh yeah it's what meaning you customize like how would you actually implement that like do you then are you like man in the middle link like tokens that you like this bundle like manage um 
and there's like some maybe you negotiate deals with OpenAI. I mean, it, that could also be interesting. Uh, maybe that's some how you could like transfer get those discounts over to customers. Yeah, I mean, that's something. I've, yeah, I'd be interested in chat about that. I, the other thing that I've been thinking about is like, what if I, I mean, OpenAI and Claude like made their own login system, right? Uh, to be like login with OpenAI. Oh no, you don't have to log in. Oh, you like Claude? Log in with Claude to get the AI application. Suddenly, your intelligence, your AI, your favorite AI, goes with you anywhere, right? I think there's a coordination cost. I'm not sure why OpenAI would be incentivized to do that, right? Um, I don't think they really care about uh, making it cross compatible. Uh, but I think that's better for the consumer. I, I would love to have that. Be like, okay, any app, I just log in with my inference provider. Have it that be like the entry, the entry point, and the intelligence, and maybe even has all my prompts. It has all my setting settings in there. Um, I think that's also an interesting idea, but um, not sure how you overcome coordination costs there. It is tough um, and unclear who would be able to pull. I mean, the, the most likely candidate to pull that off would probably be OpenAI. And I, I love the login with OpenAI or login with, you know, Anthropic or Claude or whatever as well. That's kind of, I think part of how this could work would be like, you log in to validate the, I mean, that's how the cable bundles work, right? Like you, or when you're online and you're going to go use some, ESPN app or whatever, like you log in with the cable bundle login. So something like that would probably make a lot of sense here. I think the idea too of bringing personalization with you, I'm, I'm with that also. I think I might do like do a whole show on this and kind of flesh out this vision a little bit more broadly, but they have the ChatGPT enterprise, which connects to your stuff. And, you know, they're beginning to power vector database search where you just like connect your Google Drive or connect your Dropbox or, you know, whatever. And they ingest all that stuff. They, you know, chunk it, they index it, they embed it. And now they also do all the querying. So it's all this kind of, you know, vertically integrated experience is coming to retrieval augmentation. Even that could be kind of extended to the individual level and could bring a lot of value, you know, to this login experience, right? If I could... You could log in to bring your identity and bring your sort of access. You could bring your like system prompts. You could bring your you know prompt library. You could even bring like your whole vector database profile. You know that could kind of come with you anywhere. I think that is definitely super interesting. It's a little the vision for that is a little bit foggy, um, but that's why you know I'm I'm probably not the one to do it. But um, maybe I'm the one to uh, you know talk about it until somebody at uh, one of the bigger players actually decides to implement it. I mean, it feels like the hope of OpenAI plugins was sort of that, but it feels like they pumped the brakes on that. I don't know, I don't hear much about plugins being talked about, but they said they have affordances to be able to do vector search on your company's private or your app's private data and then bringing that into ChatGPT. The kind of big quote from Sam Altman was, uh, a lot of people thought they wanted their app in ChatGPT, but what they really wanted was ChatGPT in their app. And it seems like, in my experience developing stuff, the plugin paradigm and the function calling capability that the newest models have is basically two sides of the same coin. Where, you know, when you create a plugin, you're basically declaring, here are the calls that you can make to me. And when you're using the function, calling, you're basically saying, here are the functions you have available. So that they present like slightly differently. And you, as of now, you kind of have to, you know, coerce them from one into the other format. But broadly, it seems like that's 
kind of converging toward, regardless of the interface, there is a way where the model can be made aware that it has these tools or these functions or, you know, affordances is a great word too, available. And, you know, it's getting good at knowing how to take advantage of those. And so then that distinction probably starts to kind of gradually fade away, right? Whether I want to, I don't know, we'll see. ChatGPT could get really good. Uh, But at least for now, you know, there's enough value in all these other apps. Like, I don't really want a paragraph summary of like flight options that are available. I want to not have to deal with the advanced, you know, search and sort thing on Kayak. I just want to be able to say what I want, but then still kind of see that in the like richer format and have all those controls if I do want to dive into them. So it does seem like it's bringing the AI to the app. That's kind of more of a thing. But again, that kind of, you know, speaks to some need to like grease those interactions because right now it, it is it is tough if you know folks like you are, and me are in this spot where we're like well we can give you you know how many tokens can we afford to give you before you know this just becomes unsustainable and if they could take that problem off the table and be like yeah now you don't really have to worry about that you can kind of everybody can use your app not necessarily for free but freely and then they can fall in love with it and then they can pay for your like you know higher tier plans uh, I think they could do just a tremendous amount of good for the ecosystem, you know, that that surrounds the core technology. Yeah, as a consumer, you really want to. The first few inferences are not going to be representative of your experience with this. You do need more time, I think, with an AI app. Yeah, totally. It sucks to hit that barrier after like two clicks, you know, because the one out of two that you mentioned earlier is probably tough to achieve in your first two. And, you know, we, Waymark too, we have this problem. We actually have a pretty, our thing is very well defined. And I think we do have, you know, one of the highest success rates of, of any app that I've seen out there. But still, it does kind of suck because we put people in a position very quickly where it's like, you either have to buy if you want to, you know, really do this or you're kind of, you know, hit the end of the, the experience. And I just wish we could, you know, kind of open that up a little bit more without having to, you know, just eat all the cost and, and make it kind of a, a tough thing to sustain. Anyway, again, thank you for coming down this uh, brief detour uh, rabbit hole with me. Anything else that you want to talk about today that we didn't... Oh, multi- multimodal was my one other thing. That's obviously a super hot topic. We got Dolly 3 out. We got image understanding coming. Do you envision extending your product to... You know, obviously, you have interest in creating visual assets given what we talked about with the birthday party. But is this something that you think Pseudorite will do? as well we probably won't do it ourselves or if we we do have like a small visualize button which is uses dolly on the back end but we really remain focused on the text and the story outline e- editing and story understanding um however one one place where we could possibly expand is that maybe story engine becomes sort of back in to other apps uh to want to be able to create legible stories like if we have a lot of folks who already have their stories like in our particular format, maybe with the mid-journey front end, it's like you can create storyboards. But you know, that that's really like far down in the future. I think there's a lot uh, of thorny problems as it is, even just with text <laughs> that are perhaps even more thorny in some ways than than images. Um, but yeah, we remain focused on uh, on that. But it's interesting to see OpenAI. Like I, it feels like they're moving into a world where it's like everything to everything. Uh, which I think is really smart. And I wonder how that will 
the implications of that. I mean, I imagine like that thing asks for accessibility. It, that's really cool. Because imagine like in the future, if you have a 360 camera in the middle of a meeting room, AI just recognizes sticky notes that you're putting on the board, the brainstorm session. Like um, there are some interesting applications there with storytelling too, like having a writer in a writer's room, having like an Alexa type device that can see everything, hear everything, that I, and then make suggestions that are highly relevant, right? To the context at hand. I think there are some opportunities that will unlock if, you know, if, if I'm excited to hear what OpenAI will announce in their developer conference, like, hey, maybe, maybe that will unlock some things there. Um, another sort of tangential thing is like some ideas I've had around what if, because a lot of people dictate their stories now. Uh, so what if you could just walk around San Francisco with your earbuds in and just like talk for two hours? And at the end of it, you come home and you have a whole outline that's already like pre like assembled and all that from your rambles, right? Because it's, so those are the more types of like multimodal things with this, at the service of like, how do we get great stories out of people that we're thinking about? Any apps you would recommend from your uh, many travels that um, you think people are maybe sleeping on or, you know, obviously um, I used to ask this question to everybody and then everybody would just say chat GPT. And so I kind of. What's wrong? ChatGPT is like 80% is good for everything, right? <laughs> I mean, this is probably not unknown, but cursor. I mean, I, 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 as, as a programmer, I mean, I love, I've been using that nonstop just because they can rewrite and just highlighting is just like so powerful in terms of being able to rewrite functions and things like that, that goes beyond what Copilot can do. Interesting that Copilot is sort of, sort of like lame have this little headway, but it feels like Copilot will catch up as well. Um, I think Copilot X is the thing that they're uh, building, but I've been loving like, yeah, Cursor, that's the main other AI product that I've been using. On the image side, do you have any favorites? Like what, um, did you do anything, you know, special or non-obvious for the Zelda birthday party? Oh yeah. I mean, I used a combination of uh, Midjourney and Pika, uh, Pika Labs uh, for just adding some motion. I found that to be pretty effective. Um, but also just using it, also just using Dolly as well to just get flesh out some prompts um, along the way. Oh, ChatGPT is really great at making scavenger hunts themed scavenger hunts that are that kind of like is relevant to a normal house man it can generate like a hundred different clues that are like zelda themed and it's just like now go to the fairy fountain in you know and there's like refer to something in the bathroom I'm like wow this is so good <laughs> these kind of like bespoke things right uh but really the coming of the combination of these uh these tools for the ai voice stuff um i just found it just like a random off-the-shelf website that was doing something that had a good Zelda voice. So I don't even remember the name of it. But really just like exploring, like it was fun to explore those tools. Thank you very much, James Yu, founder of Pseudorite, for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. Thanks, Nathan. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr at turpentine.co or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice.